Alright, you're listening to NYC Radio Live. David Ellenbogen here, live from Mumbai, Bombay. Um, you might hear the occasional car horn in the background. And I'm at the lovely home of Namita Devi Dayal. And she is uh, well known as the author of The Music Room. And she's just coming out with a new book called The Sixth String, The Sixth String of Velayat Khan. Um, how are you doing? Thank you for such a lovely uh, Hi. book. Hi. It's great to be on air in New York, my old hometown. Yeah, good to, good to be with you. Uh, I, as I was telling you, I've, I've been here, I think I arrived in Bombay on Saturday or something like that. And I finished this book and it's, it's I don't know, Wednesday now. So I, I've been tearing, I tore through this book. It's a great read. Shall I quiz you? Yeah, you can. <laughs> so um, what did Vilayat Khan do when he was um, 13 and a half? Like which part of the world was he in? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Um, well, one thing I love about the book, actually, is, and, and it set me at ease, is right off the bat, you say that India is not a place that truth is, is uh, given an undue import. Well, um, yeah, so to respond to that, I think, um, I think truth is a very interesting word, right? It's like love. I mean, it, it just has so many facets to it. It's not a, uni- it's not a singular thing ever. And um, so that's at a very sort of philosophical level. But um, more r- realistically, uh, you know, in India, there is very little archived information available on any of these um, old historic uh, icons. So you really have to rely on a lot of anecdotal information and um, and so when you do that, you find that for every uh, version of the story, there's another version or maybe several. And so you sort of have to like start learning how to discern through the stories and find the quote-unquote truth in that. And it takes a little bit of, um, you know, subtle understanding and and sort of you learn to read between the lines you learn to listen to what people don't have to say about the artist uh you talk to as many people and even the seemingly irrelevant ones like in the process of doing this i went and met um literally people from his doggy vet to his um ex-lovers to his um you know family of course and students and fans but you kind of have to really create this picture based on whatever you can get and all those different versions add up to the truth. But you're not relying on dates and historic facts only. It's kind of something much more layered. And I imagine, you know, being immersed in, in, this, in the world of Elijah Khan, I mean, this, this man is paradoxical in many different ways. Um, did you? Yeah. How do? How do? Well, how, how did you feel being part of of this universe, trying to uncover it and, and being enveloped in it? I think the one word that I um, that enabled me through this journey was um, to be non-judgmental, and so what I was doing was just uh, exploring all his different facets, his paradoxes. Um, 
allowing them to just kind of like tell themselves and play themselves out and really leave it to the reader to decide whether he loved this part of him or hated that part of him or you know was um absolutely accepting of the whole uh, but i had to lay it all out and actually according to me every individual has these many sides i think they just get more amplified when it comes to an artist or a well-known artist like this because it's much more out there but actually it's a it's a fact of life and the human condition is such and i think that when i think that when he talked about like um he was quite honest about his own you know pain and sorrows and and actually converted them into beauty so in a way it was like uh very very special that he had all these different sides to him and of course i think there was a lot of hurt um in him and with uh, both inflicted by him and perhaps on him uh and and that's very evident in the story um so i i think that i just had to like tell the story really i mean i wasn't trying to judge it or be moral about it because it's like who am i to do that right yeah so maybe we should bring the listeners through a, a kind of cursory bio so they they kind of understand uh what made him who he was so he came from a long lineage of yes of sitar sitar and surbahar players very illustrious family um and uh so his grandfather and his father had already become really well regarded in india and um so he was born into this incredible lineage but then you know there's always these twists of destiny where he lost his father at a very young age and so in a funny way that took away his biggest mentor but it also uh enabled him to kind of re- recreate his version of the music which is what he did mm. because he went and learned from his mother's side of the family who were singers they were hereditary singers and not sitar players so he actually learned how to sing and he became a, a very accomplished vocalist for several years he was only doing that well largely doing that uh in fact if you hear his vocal uh, re- you know renditions they this stunning um so he then basically transposed that kind of uh rendition which is you know vocal music into an instrument and created the gaikiyang which is really the first of its kind in instrumental music at least in sitar music so he ended up sort of elevating sitar music to a higher level because there was a hierarchy in those days uh and vocal music was considered more um sort of superior to instrumental music so he actually sort of like just jostled everything around and so it's very interesting right like you think that some tragedy uh you know apocalyptic thing that happened in his life was the worst and most devastating thing but it actually led him into another direction and who knows what would have happened uh to his music if his father had been alive you know right and um i wonder like uh is there a particular piece of music where you feel that this singing quality that he brought is there is there one that you could put your finger on where you say oh this when when you say he made the sitar sing maybe maybe it's everything but is maybe something's going to jump to your well um i think the pieces that would come to mind immediately are his darbari kannada and also uh his sanj saravali which is just so so sort of like melodious and beautiful i mean it really is 
is sung in that i mean played in that khayal style of singing so i think those are the okay. two that come to mind all right so let's take a listen talk about and just of, of when his father and I was not only extremely successful musically but also um, people were throwing their pearls at him and they, he was extremely rich and he was somewhat of a playboy himself as well. He, he was a partier kind of. You know I just don't know enough we about know. that um, but I assume based on you know, little bits of information that they all pretty much were. Okay. Uh, it wasn't even Playboy with the w- version that we think of as Playboy, right? It was just like that was part of their world. And okay. uh, so they used to hang out a lot with the Bais. So the music world and the sort of Tawaif world, which is uh, the world of the dancing girls and singers, uh-huh. was all very interconnected, you know. And mm-hmm. so these lines that we have kind of created just didn't exist back right. then. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I just feel a little bit uh, hesitant to comment on yeah, that. Yeah, okay, so we don't really know. But yeah. either way, w- the more important thing for his bio is that he was he was raised with wealth f- for a short period. That, that he was yes. raised around wealth. He was raised with high expectations. Uh, he was uh, probably everybody who entered their home was obsequious not only to his father but to maybe him as the son of the great guru. Absolutely, and you can tell just from like the photographs that I found. Um, there's a there's an a, a extraordinarily beautiful picture of his parents when um, 
he must have been a very little boy and you can tell from the way they're dressed they look really regal the father had these sort of long curling locks that would come down cascading down his um you know uh his side the side of his uh, neck and the mother is wearing these like anklets that are about six inches uh, in, in width they're just beautiful and she looks beautiful and they both look like they were extremely sort of posh people um, and then, yes, he lost everything. His mother was a widow at a very young age. And um, he actually, I, I mean, I, one, one might want to suggest that that combination of deprivation and ambition is also what sort of fueled his, um, you know, his, his rigor and his practicing techniques. And I mean, not techniques, but the rigor with which he practiced mm. because he knew he had to make it on his own. Well, uh, if I remember correctly in the book, his mother actually kind of told him at, I, I'm not sure what age was it 12 or younger so none of these numbers okay, are, we don't know yeah but we I, don't I know don't, because they when all he was, yeah but when he was very young yeah, yeah. a very young age basically said you know all the fair weather friends had disappeared yeah with the father's death they no longer had an income and the father was not uh you know putting this stuff in uh mutual funds so <laughs> right you know so she actually told this young child who just lost his father that he's going to be the new breadwinner. And, Absolutely. And he has to be... So she basically groomed him, I'm sure with that in mind as well, uh, because she could see that you know he was the potential breadwinner in the family. Uh, so she did something very interesting. She was quite the tiger mom. Um, mm -hmm. And so she basically divided the family assets with the you know the assets were musical assets they were the, you know and so she divided them between the two brothers so the elder brother Vilayat learned the sitar and the younger brother was going to be the surbahar player and between the two of them they would carry the family legacy and then she saw to it that uh, in whatever way she could she enabled his training by going to her maternal family by going to random relatives and you know, other associates of her husband's and, and in-laws to just make sure that the training continues. Uh, Imrat Khan told me this amazing story about how she would get this one relative who had a bad substance abuse habit but had the music and she would actually kind of like feed his habit just so that he would sit there and play and teach her younger son. So that's just kind of amazing. Um, you know, the lengths that she went. And really, if it wasn't for her, we don't know what would have happened. Because yeah. there's so many musical families where, you know, things just dissipate. Like the, It's like one generation later and it's all over. Because there's really no kind of formal setup for all this. It's just about getting it together. Yeah, and I guess in, in, in their family... Um, Females' roles were not to be public performers. Right. So if they were musically gifted, their energies went towards grooming, grooming the males. Yeah, I mean, I believe so. I think that that was very much the case in those days. I think it must have changed uh, now, obviously, but yeah. yes, certainly. So she was really the sort of the uh, back-end person who may have known the music and so she could really train and, and uh, you know, engage with them while they were learning. But no, they would not perform. But so essentially, to you, was this was this the major kind of traumatic event that could kind of explain uh, 
both you know his drive and and his uh, and and also his lack of patience for anything standing in his way and and and, and all, all this other stuff is this the kind of big formative thing to to go from I mean that's wealth a specu- to poverty and, yeah that's a speculation but I do believe from my little reading of psychology that what happens in your teenage years with wealth uh, and deprivation do impact the way you you um, engage with wealth even when you have it later so it's a it's it becomes a sort of a space in your head and I think he really did go through a lot of humiliation and a lot of difficulties uh, from the stories that he told his family and that I got to hear so I'm sure that that impacted him yes and then in his teen years he 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 runs away yeah the runaway story is i think kind of um uniformly uh told by every musician in india so it's like you know we don't know how much there was of running away or what it was but yeah mm-hmm. he ran away it's very dramatic he went to delhi he found himself on the doorstep of all india radio which had just started so that's an incredible backdrop because it was the first institution that was employing indian classical musicians and it became like a kind of a hub so it's actually a big part of his whole development in those years because the director of all india radio who then moved to lahore after partition was very instrumental in ensuring that he got access to these musicians that he got you know that he was given food and a roof over his head uh, and he sort of employed him in some small way over there uh so it's it's an it's really beautiful because you also get to sort of understand what that time was you know where patronage had just shifted from the maharajas the kings and the feudal lords and the to uh you know the first government institution and then of course um after a while vilayat khan uh discarded it because he did not approve of certain grading systems that all india radio had incorporated from the british uh where government officers would be um authorized to decide what grade an artist was he found that really offensive so he just from 1952 onwards did not play on the radio he burned the bridge he burned that bridge <laughs> among many others yeah. that was one of the first and so this whole time is a very interesting time because i could i also sort of attempted to understand the backdrop of um what was happening you know for example it was also the time when gramophone records etc were coming out and i mean had been out but two decades by then and he made those his mentors as well so he would actually listen endlessly to um the recordings of the great musicians like fayaz khan and abdul karim khan and zohra bai and later kesar bai these are all like amazing musicians and you know he would almost memorize uh the music which would then sort of find its way into his but obviously with his own touch but this is a very beautiful thing because this is how uh you know indian classical music is never really owned in a sense it's just like a kind of a a flow that happens and you know one day somebody's the guru and then there's another sh- a shishya and then the next thing the shishya has become the guru and it's just kind of passed on in this beautiful way and so uh i think that he really relied on every resource and available music to kind of create his own and there's no notion of plagiarism or anything but you know mm-hmm. 
And also, I guess uh, one thing I started to glean from your book and other things lately is that the, the historical period that that as uh, India entered uh, independence, the idea of having a national music when you have uh, a country as big as India with all these different languages and cultures. Right that this was being pushed yeah it's very interesting so all india radio was kind of the first time that india had a national voice which would be uniform whether you were in the north south west or east which until then was completely like you know a singer from mysore may never have heard a singer from kashmir ever because there was no technology to enable that so suddenly there was a, you know a new uniform voice there was an indian standard time created and they started sort of um creating these national programs of indian classical music which then became a way of almost making you proud of your culture so it became a kind of a narrative a new narrative for india and so all these artists were employed by radio and it was a very very exciting time in a sense for um, india for these musicians then of course you know um, i think a lot of them moved into the film industry which was more well paying and also more glamorous so many of uh, many of these artists actually had two names they would have a um, uh, uh, an alib- what is it called alias. Like an, an alias name for for their classical music which they did on radio uh and in concerts and then another name which they used when they were in the film industry uh doing compositions which was slightly looked down upon and so they didn't want to sort of um expose themselves necessarily right yeah and i kind of think about that that period too that because of india's new identity the music was extremely relevant right that was like it, like and and maybe that that that's something hard to understand that the the excitement that this music had as as a national music yeah but it's it's also it was a little complicated because a lot of these artists would find it very difficult and offensive to have to play within a slot a time mm-hmm. slot and so they were so used to this kind of lavish um you know all night concert where they were they would build up you know take two hours to just warm up and then sort of play and there'd be this you know really languid energy to that so in radio they had to sort of like truncate their performances and work within that so it it, it there was a lot of like um jostling around uh, you know of of um mental space and and then it all worked out because they knew they didn't have a choice right um and that's a very interesting time as well because uh it's also the first time that indian classical music traveled to the west so there was huge changes happening and that had its own impact because suddenly you had ravi shankar playing with the beatles and yehudi menuhin mm-hmm. and you know india indian music was discovered right uh, of course that doesn't apply to vilayat khan because he didn't go there until much later but um yeah so that there were very interesting th- sort of larger broad sweep things going on in the background of vilayat khan's life which right. and a, a cultural diplomat he was not you know? he was <laughs> not um and uh 
I think he um, did uh, spend a lot of time in the UK and in Europe um, in the 50s. And, but, but, he, but I think he also spent a lot of time in Iran and Afghanistan. So my sense is that if one were to compare him and Ravi Shankar, Ravi Shankar was always much more of the international player. He had been abroad from the time he was a young teenager with his brother. And so that whole, um, you know, he was more uh, able to sort of like communicate with Western audiences. Sure. I think Vilayat Khan was a more traditional um, artist and uh, very consciously so. I guess this kind of leads us to that uh, famous story of which there are many versions. Um, but you, you begin with the book with this incident of a planned concert uh, with Ali Akbar Khan and Ravi Shankar. And uh, I guess I can let the storyteller take it from here. Yeah, so it's an incredible story. You know, every journalist and storyteller is looking for that perfect anecdote to start the, 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 the storytelling with. And this really just was amazing because it was a iconic concert that took place in 1952 in New Delhi. And... Um, Basically, these three artists and two very well-known tabla players were all on stage together. And the story is that Vilayat Khan, it's sort of turned into a battle of sitars where the notes became like arrows, you know, that were being shot to annihilate. (laughs) And um, eventually, I think um, Vilayat Khan was sort of, you know, named the winner and it became quite the talking point for because every everyone was there. It was like this concert. Right. And everyone I remembers. actually heard a, a version recently from Ishan Ghosh, who is Nayan Ghosh. Oh yeah, son, the, yeah. Or, and um, and Nayan Ghosh got the story from Ravi Shankar, and in that version, um, it was well. One thing that was agreed upon in all the versions was that after he was the victor of this, that he he didn't uh, win gracefully. He kind of, you know, that, that, that there was a kind of agreement that he, he held up the sitar, kind of like a machine gun. And, and yeah, kind of said, so who, I've who, heard that who's too. next? Kind I've of. heard that. I've heard that too. Yeah. And I'm sure, it, you know, it sounds plausible because I think he was an angry young man. He was 24 at the time. And there was a kind of an, a very strong, aggressive energy in him. He mellowed out much later. And so, uh, you know, the, the different versions of the story are not as relevant as the sort of bottom line, which was to place these two sitar players on the same stage and present, you know, who, who Vilayat Khan was, which is why that chapter is called Who is this Vilayat Khan? Right. For somebody who hasn't necessarily heard of, you know, him and knows, doesn't know that world. And I think another sort of subtext to this book is also that, you know, fame and talent often have very little to do with each other. Um, I, I've, I've seen that in my sort of like uh, over the years in my journey um, in the world of music. And so I think Vilayat Khan seems to have uh, not been as interested in, in fame and he chose not to be a collaborative artist, even though he had choices. He, he did, you know, he sort of like turned down like major awards because he didn't believe that any 
random official had the authority, had the right to arbitrate or ar- be the arbiter of who is a better musician. Right. Um, he, at the height of his career in his mid-30s, he moved to the hills of Shimla, which was in the middle of nowhere, because he felt like. And so I think that his, you know, trajectory has always been a kind of a, um, a narrative of, of resistance in a sense. Uh, and it's very beautiful actually to come across this and still see the depth of his music, you know, and, and sort of understand that he was really, uh, not to say that other artists weren't, but he certainly was playing his music with incredible integrity um, without this sort of uh, worldly motivation mm. of being um, recognized. Having said that, it would irk him that he wasn't. Every once in a while he would talk about, you know, he would rant about this. But he still stuck to his guns. And I find that very beautiful and inspiring, actually, as a, as a creative person, to be able to have that, you know, you know, you're sort of like working just with yourself and your art. Right. I mean, I guess even when, you know, there, there's a moment late in life that you capture where he was practicing and someone wanted to watch him practice. And oh, he faced the wall practicing. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah. I heard that from a, a friend who was his student and she said that he, uh, he, he, she asked if she could come into the room while he was practicing. This is when he was much older, living in Princeton. And he said, no, sweetheart, for then it would not be practice, it would be performance. Right. So are there recordings of this young period where he's playing like someone who has something to prove that you can think of off the top of your head? Something yeah, yeah, fiery. There are, yeah, there what, are what, some. There are short. What are there are those um, megaphone company recordings, which which then eventually got bought by HMV, which is now Saregama. So they are accessible. Mm-hmm. Is there um, something you'd recommend we take a listen to now? Um, there is a little piece in Thodi, I believe. Okay, I'll check it out. Thank you. 
Okay, so Vilayat Khan is a young man. He is starting to become recognized and successful. And what are the ways that he's kind of letting the world know that this is the case? So I think he, um, you can see the trajectory of his music and his, uh, you know, he used to really uh, play with a, clearly with a with an idea to impress with the sort of um uh the energy of um you know it it was more energetic than uh mellow mm-hmm. and so you see that you see that the the incredible technique and his sheer perfection you see all that but what you don't see until much later is that desire not to impress Mm. It's kind of incredible because you can see, you can hear the ease in his music. It's when, you know, the notes have just kind of like entered his muscles and his nerves and he's kind of like just playing because he just is playing and he has that sort of ease that, that you hear in somebody's music is something really special. It's, there's a word which, which in Hindi is terav. It's very hard to uh, translate it, but it basically is a kind of a very easy and quiet space mm-hmm. even in the music it's funny someone explained that term to me last night because oh. we were doing a close listening to Hari Prasad Charazia and, and that uh, Tarav as you speak of is, is ever present in his music uh, it's uh, unhurried right uh, it's uncomfortable yeah comfortable in the space that it is kind yeah of i mean there were you know for in the old days uh, musicians would not allow their children and their students to perform until they were much older because a lot of what comes into your playing only comes much later it comes with the practice and with life mm. and so it's um it's you're sort of like killing the you know, golden goose by putting them on stage at a young age, if even if they're really competent. So at this time, you know, he's he's a young man. He he's uh, dressing as dapper as he can possibly dress. Yeah, he he's, used to sometimes cut and stitch his own clothes and drive his mm-hmm. family crazy. And he would. Uh, he, he would, would not out. he would not just dress himself but if his family was attending a concert he'd actually curate what they were going to wear because they were part of his you know persona right so nothing for him was just like accidental and spontaneous when it came to performance it was so meticulous and thought out he had such regard for his audience that it had to be just perfect and he thought it through he would even practice the way he would walk onto stage how he would take his bow at which point he would stop a particular rag and start the other. Uh, yeah, and I, I feel that being around, it's this kind of jumping forward in his life, but that kind of controlling um, persona is really wonderful in an artist and probably much more complicated in a, as a father or a, a husband. Of course. So I think that each member of his family, um, in their own way, well, you know, suffered. And, uh, but I think that they all got both sides of the coin because when you're around somebody like this, you get these nuggets of wisdom and musical wisdom that are just so precious. 
but then perhaps as um you know f- when it comes to family it can get difficult i mean he was traveling a lot he was possibly very self absorbed very moody you know one of his family members said that if you so much as whistled at him he'd pull out a gun so he he had a certain sort of um ruthlessness clearly uh and i think it did play out but i i mean that's just one of those spaces which i think people learn to navigate or not mm. and so i mean i think it's important to talk about this period because that this young period or mid mid period because um people might project onto indian classical musicians uh maybe a, a spartan way of life or or, or something you know uh spartan none yeah, of them were was, yes exactly this guy was a, a basically a playboy i mean he was partying every night for a period i mean that was like yeah. up you know un- until a certain point and then mm-hmm. he just um i think moved to the hills so there wasn't as much right. scope he would hang out there with his roosters and dogs more than people right but um yeah spartan is not a word that i would use to describe pretty much any of them mm-hmm. uh however i think there were moments of great uh stoic spartan existence within that which right. possibly is what led them to become such great musicians so I think that they weren't unidimensional. I think that they just played life out in all its different rags, you know, mm. so to speak. I mean, one of my favorite stories is about Hari Prasad since you brought him yeah. up and uh Hari Prasad ji and and Vilayat Khan who were buddies and there's a there's a time when Hari Prasad was in um giving a concert in New York or I'm sorry in New Jersey and Vilayat Khan found out that his friend was there so he sent his younger son Hidayat to um to get him home with a message that he was cooking his favorite partridge curry that night and when Hari Prasad found out that this was um you know the what was one offer he actually stopped playing earlier and ran out of the green room and just jumped into the car and was like let's go so he kind of like feigned illness and he was just you know so they were they were really funny i mean they were just like yeah and food food was huge food was f- food and aesthetics in general yeah so i think he had this view that your sensory um life was very interconnected and all played into your music in some way so I think he treated taste with a certain refinement uh which would which was also the way he viewed his music. So for him he's he's talked about how um even the point at which you put salt into your food um affects the way in which the food tastes. It and your music has to be so subtle that that level of um detail has to come into not just the way you cook but the way you play and so i think he really like believed that you have to sort of like refine and refine your aesthetic to such a level he's he gives this beautiful story about how even if the listener is not able to sort of get that um li- that subtle refinement that you've worked on uh their subconscious mind will get it and it will impact them i think that's just very stunning because mm. it's 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 at a level of nuance that is very hard to um 
even explain to a generation that is so used to instant gratification and um you know playing to the gallery sure so for me these were very important moments and i think and i hope that i have actually changed the way i view life and my creative process actually yeah yeah i mean that's that's part of the river of of inspiration right touching getting involved with these great artists and yeah i mean it's it's just really a privilege because you don't get these messages uh you know for me some of the biggest compliments i've gotten from this uh um after this book have come from musicians who've written to me and said that they have been inspired to practice harder after reading it to me that's like wow you know we we created a little more music in the world like that's great and that's how it's supposed to be right like mm-hmm. everything has this little ripple effect and you know if you can somehow participate in that whole process of flow i mean sometimes when you look at even the way you know ravi shankar was responsible for a certain moment in american history which then led to a uh, a connoisseur of music who then 20 years later became obsessed with vilayat khan it's all very connected and beautiful so nothing mm-hmm. is random and you know i find all these kind of you know connecting the dots very very beautiful and interesting yeah and i suppose you know the biographical stuff the the gossipy <laughs> element of it or the um that's not the heart of it at the heart of it is as as an artist and the art and maybe something even past well, all of so. that well i hope so i hope so i mean i definitely made that attempt and mm-hmm. the gossipy stuff was really about storytelling to you know just keep a person engaged because how are you going to talk about you know sort of the vision of music without a little bit of fun as well and a little bit of story sure but the the larger part of it was really about the the vision that he had for music and for living and also that these are things that are sort of like so much larger than us you know i was really like very moved by that period when India was discovering you know western music and jazz and and America was dis- and and the we- and the UK would and basically the west was discovering indian music and it was as if there was this beautiful kind of invisible cultural exchange taking place and you know the impact that all had on everyone uh is is really kind of remarkable it then set new tributaries out um right yeah and and i i found it very moving that passage where as you said earlier um he as a young boy you're he learned everything he could or as a teenager everything he could from records and that he he kept that alive with his grandchildren and he would force everybody to listen to records yeah over with his children again, with, his, with children. his children and and um yeah he was yeah. listening to like uh, 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 jazz gerald and right. better bark talk and J- janis joplin and and really finding each person's amazing quality and uh suggesting that 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 quality be brought into you know their music right that that is also a, an act of great humility because it's acknowledging the best in another artist even if that artist um is a young folk singer which is what he did he went and found this young folk singer and for that moment made that 
singer into his teacher and sat on the ground while his that, that young boy in his absolute like baffled way was made to sit on a couch and teach him i mean that really it's it's an incredible act of humility which i th- and that ability to be a student when you need to be a student i think kept his whole creativity alive right till his last day right and his creativity and uh interest and and experimentation they went beyond music to his tinkering with his cars he could <laughs> he could yeah, change the fantastic. height of his car that kind of thing i mean really he was obsessed with his car and he could like I think he had such a profound relationship with sound that he could tell what was wrong with the car by the hum of the engine. He had such an intimate relationship with the uh, and he also was passionate about doing whatever he was doing. He would like sort of uh play around and do a lot of DIY things in the house. Mm-hmm. He would also engage with people I'm told at a very personal and intimate level where he would actually ask them about their lives and want to know so this ability to engage i think with anything and any you know element of life is very powerful right because it keeps you alive and it seemed like um at, towards the end of his life um he seemed to enjoy the greater anonymity of moving to i think it was new jersey and and princeton and not being at all times surrounded by people wow wow wowing at every single yeah, thing. Yeah, he, he says said. that in an interview and I think he um I think he enjoyed just being um you know a, a quote unquote regular guy. He used to play a lot of cards. He used to hang out with these people and uh you know he would still play his music and teach and come back to India every year but uh it seems like he had gotten a bit tired of the politics in music in india and i think was looking for a really salubrious environment which princeton new jersey offered him can you i'd like to listen to that uh famous recording that you speak of with uh imrat khan his, oh, his brother and sarbahar it's really beautiful yeah you want to the set night that at us? the taj yeah so it's basically a duet that these two brothers played and it's considered one of uh the most um stunning instrumental duets of all time in india um and it's uh, what's uh, what's beautiful about it is is uh vilayat khan really unleashed his fertile imagination and created a kind of a not a libretto but a story a narrative behind the piece so the entire piece is actually based on his story of these two lovers who come down their souls come down for one night and dance around the taj and they are basically the king shah jahan who built the taj mahal for his wife mumtaz and so he shows her the what he's built for her for the first time in this musical piece mm. and in it uh, the surbahar which is a kind of a more bass sitar it's like the cello to the violin um is the voice of shah jahan played by imrat khan the younger brother and the sitar is the voice of mumtaz and it's played by vilayat khan and it's really beautiful so they're sort of like dancing around and then at the very end there's a very sort of a sad plaintive few minutes and this is the point at which the fairies have come down 
to remind them that uh, the night is over and the party is over and they have to go back up because they're not human. And it's really sweet, it's corny, but it's really beautiful. Mm. And for him to sort of create this beautiful dramatic narrative of music uh, and play it, and when you when you actually hear it in the music, um, it's quite amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, let's take a listen. That might be a, a nice way to take it out. thing that I was really fascinated to learn at the very end of the book, I mean, there's so many great stories that people will have to buy the book to read, such as uh, getting his cobalt blue, what, what kind of car was it? Oh, I, yeah, I believe it was a cobalt blue Mercedes. Mercedes and driving it all the way from Iran. They'll have to, they'll have to read the book it's for incredible. that. And then having amazing. a party for it. They named, he named the car Gazala and dressed it up as his bride by putting a big uh, nose ring on the bonnet. <laughs> And then had this epic party for it. Right. And you stumble, we're, we're in, the, in the presence of the invitation, which yep. is an amazing document of a, uh, you know, this, you can see that it was a wild party just from the invitation, which kind of shows what a, a heady, exciting time that was. Sure. And also the kind of people he was uh, hanging around at that time and Bombay at that time. So it gives you a whole kind of a picture of, you know, what life was was like. So I would find it so interesting to learn that, you know, at, well, I'll step back and say that this, this book, um, it seems like a very um, kind of balanced and intimate uh, portrait of somebody with the with the good and the bad and and all mixed in, and I can imagine that's a very uh, delicate balance. And it was very interesting to read that you wrote this uh, at the at the behest of his son Hidayat. 
Yeah, so, because I think his son felt that nobody really knew the man. They knew the musician and they knew the music, but you know, they he wanted the man to come out. The man had so many extraordinary facets. Right, and you had the participation of of his other son. Yeah, it was very generous of him to um share stories and be quite open even though there was an estrangement between them, but uh, Yashujath was was very open and generous right, i have and his to brother, say so the the family w- was part of this yeah i think so i was terrified and uh, when i went to meet his brother who lived in st louis missouri strangely which is the most unlikely place for a indian classical sorbahar player to end up but there <laughs> there he was and he was so sweet and kind and warm and uh, opened his uh, stories up to me and spoke about their fight and their uh, and the pain and the love and everything and and um so have you gotten any response have they have they read the book yet Imrit Khan passed away soon after right which is why i feel even more privileged to have been there um yes shujat was uh, really sweet and and sent me a very kind message oh, saying that it, uh, that the book made him laugh and cry and to me that was you know as good as it gets when For you sure. hear that from somebody uh, about his father and then hidayat of course has been just overjoyed and participated in the whole process with me and the you know launches and it's been beautiful because it's um it's something where i think he's joyful for his reasons and i am excited about the book and so it's it's been really special i feel like i'm almost you know part of the family now and in my own way i've sort of like posthumously tried to bring them all together in the book if you notice in the last chapter it was just my little mm-hmm. tribute to this great It's the first family of sitar in the world I mean really between the brothers and the sons and the uncles and the cousins it's they they covered the whole incredible um uh you know the the, the best sitar players today are from this family right so while they may not talk to each other or whatever for their own reasons the fact is that they're all from this one incredible gene pool right so yeah, for, for, for me incredible. that's like you really have something Khan and you have Shahid exactly and exactly you have really so so, so i think yeah. that it was it's really important to acknowledge that and give them a lot of um you know well just pay tribute yeah i think they deserve a lot of credit for um allowing their story to be so open and i would think that it would contribute to the the healing of of you know some of the the the, the struggles that have have you know that that come with with such a heavy burden and, and i hope so history. i hope so that's a, that's a whole other journey yeah well <laughs> anyway thank you for your time this is lovely and thank um, you yeah i look forward to checking out the music And and listeners should know that this is going to come out as an audio book, yes. and include uh, samples of his work, which is uh, thanks to Lyle Wachowski, right, who recorded some of the best ever pieces of Vilayat Khan in New York. Yeah, and that's yeah. Well, that's for the for the next interview. That's yeah. that's a whole other fascinating, uh, many fascinating things. But yeah. how that all happened and. Um, and how bloomingdales was responsible for getting him to the us i find that so incredibly funny yeah although maybe that's not as ironic as we think <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> We're all mere commodities <laughs> out there for consumption. Well, all right. So thank you, Namita Devidial. Uh, this was lovely. And, um, thank you so much. I look much. forward to your future books.